You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. being more busy. Um, When you're actually known and you can be vulnerable, you're able to sort through a lot of the problems and difficulties in life and find support to walk through them. Um, Most of the things we walk through, particularly um, in the area um, the Swarbricks are talking about, is we want to keep it in the dark because we're embarrassed or we're ashamed or we think we've got it under control. But the reality is it's controlling you because you're allowing it to remain in the dark and that's where sin spreads. It's when we bring things to the light, and it's that we're allowed, allowing ourselves to be known and encouraged and supported and brought along by others, that we find that freedom, we find that growth, and finally find that victory that we are all really searching for in our lives through the strength that Christ gives us. But he never called us to do it alone. He's always encouraged us to be in community. Um, and so relationships are deeply important. Even um, at Hat Up there, we have a Friends of Westside weekend that some of you may not, they may not be your friends. You may not know them at all. Um, but that's Brian and Rachel Barr. Uh, so for 21 years, Steve and Terry Barr were the lead eldership couple of this church. And that's their son and daughter-in-law. They planted a church in Texas. And Brian has probably come and visited this church more than any other person that we relate to. And so it's a long-lasting, deep relationship that we developed, and we want to continue developing those things. We want to make sure that when we invite somebody in, we know them. They're a part of the heartbeat here. They know us, and they can encourage, and they can look in, and it's just a wonderful thing that we have with these communities. Um, Preparing for this message this week, I did not have high expectations for it. because I'm saying this is part two All we're doing is getting Rebecca and going back home. I did not expect a lot out of this. Um, And as I dug into it, I was really flipped on my head. Uh, I was considering all the things that God has promised and how he goes through these things. And that often in our life, we find ourselves waiting for something. Um, It reminded me of a book that we have, Dr. Seuss' book, Oh, the Places You'll Go. And there's a whole like double-page section called The Waiting Place. And how so many people spend so much time here. You're waiting for the phone to ring or someone to sing or catch a break or your cousin Jake and you're just (laughs) waiting for something. And it's a very difficult spot to be because you're, you're just pining and desiring and wanting this moment to finally come about. And it can be a hard spot to be in when it hasn't happened yet. And it brought me to the passage 2 Peter 3 beginning in verse 8. And it says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. 
and I was considering both these things are true, that the Lord is patient and the Lord has his own timing that isn't ours and it's hard to wait. But what are you doing during the waiting? Because nobody knows the day and the hour that Christ comes. It could be at 20 minutes from now. The Lord could come and take us all away. What have we been doing while we are waiting for that thing that's never going to happen now? Have we been making good use of that time? Have we been preparing for perhaps when that very thing might come to pass? Because I considered this. What happens when it happens? What now? Are you actually ready for that? To walk into that? What are you going to do next? Just some things to consider as we jump into this passage. Out of Genesis 24, I'm going to read a big chunk and then kind of break down a little bit of it as we go. And so this is the servant talking, and he's basically going to give us a whole recap of chapter 1 here, or the first part of this chapter. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him, he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife from my son, from my clan, and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camel's drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camel's drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. So a little bit left to go, but this is a nice stopping point. We're going to give a little bit of background here of what's going on. So the servant is looking for these people. This is the lineage of Terah. And there's actually someone who's missing on here. Right here, we should have Haran, the third son, but Haran has passed away. And actually, Haran also had a son. Uh, His name is Lot. We've already known Lot. And Lot's daughters would have been the most obvious choice, but what should be obvious now after going through chapter 19, they are not a choice that can be made here. (laughs) So really, they're looking for Nahor's sons. And these ones specifically because they're closest within the lineage because his wife Milka here was actually Haran's daughter. Very close family. 
Um, and so it might seem like a lot of people there and a lot of potential, but you've got to imagine this is a metropolitan area they're going to. And even a small metropolitan area, the likelihood of finding the very first person you come in contact be, the exact one you want it to be, is slim. Just imagine going up to Pollock Pines, and it's not a huge place, but there's quite a few people there. And you go into Safeway, and the very first person you bump into happens to be the daughter of the man you came to meet. And it just really points to God's providence in all of this. God's hand working, making sure that everything came to pass as he desires. And when I came to that point, as I was jotting down my notes, I wrote down the question, how much control do I really have over my life? Because when we read these accounts and we go, yes, God is working through all of this, we're, we're kind of okay for it then, but then we just fast forward to now and you're living in this and this idea that all of God's purposes will come to pass. Everything he desires is going to happen. And it brings up that really important question, do I have any control over my life at all? And so we have to consider for a moment who God is compared to who we are. Is that God not only exists in all places at once should he choose, he can also exist in all time at once should he choose. And so if we consider time to be a line because we can't go backwards and we can only go forwards at the rate that it's currently going, we don't get to jump around. We can reflect, we can look forward, but you're stuck here and we're here and now. But imagine you can see the whole time and you can see every moment of time at the same time. And you can be in every moment of time at the same time. And so way down here at the end, I want this to come past here so I... I have someone step on a butterfly, or I have a stiff breeze blow someone just an inch to the left, or whatever it might be, to tweak, 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 till finally what I desire comes to pass, while at the same time maintaining everybody's ability to choose still. Because you are still 100% responsible for every choice you make despite God's influence in the world. And that can be a difficult thing to struggle with, particularly when we go to passages um, like in Exodus, when it talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he wouldn't let the people go. And we think, well, how is that fair? How is that free will? But I ask you this question, how is that any different than any bad, stubborn day you've had? And how you were still responsible to manage the emotions you were walking through. You were still responsible to look inwardly and make a just choice regardless of how you felt. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit called self-control. Is that we have to maintain and we have to make godly decisions regardless about how we feel within the situation. And that's what's going on here. You are 100% responsible for every single choice that you make. Because God has given you a will and his purposes will come to pass. And those things are two truths that are in tension. Continuing in our account. Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me. That I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, this, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. I kind of wish I had highlighted and underlined that at first. Take her and go. So the language is, to me, very imminent. And yeah, just go be on your way and be blessed. And how quickly this is going to shift. 
And let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry and silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. And he gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while. It's only been an evening. What has changed in their tune here? Money. So this is some very strong foreshadowing of the sin that besets this family is greed, particularly the greed of Laban. Uh, Laban is going to be a very important character when we've come across Rebekah and Isaac's son Jacob, when he goes to find a wife, and Laban is going to get every last penny he can out of Jacob. He's going to work him essentially for free for 14 years simply to be able to marry one of his daughters and tricking him and deceiving him along the way and trying to get... It's, he's, a, he's not a great guy. Um, and so they say... Let her remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. And it seems kind of reasonable at first. This is very sudden. We've slept on it. Let's, let's have a little bit of time before she goes. Just a, around 10 days at the most. This isn't a big deal. What's interesting about that phrasing is that's not a direct translation. When I went to look at the wording there, the wording is a while. Uh, it's a day or 10. It's yamin o asor. A day or ten. But that word a day is a unit of time, but not a specific unit of time. That can mean a year or ten. And if we know anything about Laban, it's like, hmm, wonder if that's perhaps a bit closer to what's going on here. They're trying to stretch out this time to be able to get as much out of they can as is possible, because this is a very rich crew. They just brought out all this stuff. I wonder what else is in the bags that we can get before they go bit of foreshadowing. But he said to them, do not delay me. The servant is wise. This is a good example of how to behave in these situations. So not get caught up in the moment to stay steady, stay purpose, stay on track. He said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I'll go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servants, and his men, and they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. And so this is really further emphasizing that Rebekah is the right choice for Isaac. She's been given a parallel blessing that we've seen given to Abraham that Isaac is to inherit. Out of Genesis 12, it says, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is Isaac's blessing now compared to Rebekah's blessing. They're meant to be together. It's just really pointing to the reader. This is God's hand at work. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man, Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Be'er Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, 
who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And really makes you want to have at the end of that, and they lived happily ever after. More on that in a minute. Um, but before, just a couple of things. Uh, the well that it came from, Be'er Lahai Roy, means the well of the living one who sees me. And it's not the first time that we've seen this well in our narrative. This is actually where Hagar fled at first when Sarah was mistreating her and where the angel of the Lord met her and told her that her son Ishmael would become the father of many nations himself. And so encouraged her to go back to the household of Abraham and allow the boy to grow up there and that all would be well. And so this is also the region, it's all, they call this whole area down south in Israel, the Negev. It's got Shur, it's got Havilah, and it's got the wilderness of Paran down there. And it's where Ishmael and all of his family spread out. It's where they live. And it happens to be also where Isaac settles. I found that very intriguing. I never caught that before until we started going through this. Because at this point, Isaac is 40 years old. That would make Ishmael approximately 53 years old. It's about the age difference between Matt and myself. And they're both grown men now. They're both heads of households now. And they've been able to get over the issues of their parents. And it was very encouraging to me that you don't have to be defined by the difficulties that your parents brought into your life. Is that you can move beyond that. You are your own person. And so they've been able to find at least... Um, reconciliation as brothers later on in their life. Because actually, Abraham is going to have a bunch of other kids as well, and he's going to send them all away. And the only people that bury Abraham are Isaac and Ishmael, and they do it together. And so although there was animosity amongst the mothers, not amongst these two sons. And I found that particularly encouraging for families that are going through any particular struggles. And then the other thing we see here is that it's this is very much like an ancient time love story. It's a Cinderella story kind of thing going on here. Arranged marriages aren't really the thing of now, but they were really common then, particularly of affluent families. And so really, it's, you have Rebecca, and she's just going through her life. She's going out to fetch water, and suddenly she looks up, and there's a wealthy man from a faraway place. And he comes up, I have come to bring you to your prince to a faraway land where you'll be the matriarch of a mighty household and your life will begin now. Oh my. <laughs> and he's bring, brought you costly gifts and wealth and affluence and I'm going to take you down and who's that in the distance? It's Isaac. <laughs> oh my. And he loved her and he was comforted. And it's this very happily ever after moment. But the reality that we look at, and what's interesting, is that the rest of their life still happens. The, their life didn't end right there. And although the moment is good, and we should celebrate in the moment, the moment does end. We have to live the rest of our life still. And I'll jump into that before we close here. 
And so I want to look at some, a few takeaways when we look at this passage. How do we walk this out in our lives? And so really, the servant is the hero of our story here, of our account. He's the, the great example to, to follow for us. And the first thing that just jumped out at me, I, could have, I felt like I could have made the whole sermon just about this, was the very first line that we looked at. The only defining thing that the servant said about himself is, I am Abraham's servant. There is no lineage. There is no account of deeds. There is no, I am, I don't know a name that fits. I'm Jeremiah, second only to Abraham, Lord of the region of Canaan, greatest in the land. Honor me. He doesn't do any of that. He says, I am Abraham's servant. That is my purpose. That is who I am. This isn't about him. He has no intrinsic personal motivations here. He doesn't gain anything from this. But he's going to do the best he possibly can for the sake of someone else because he is a part of something greater than himself. He's not about his own glorification. He's about the glorifying God and the family he's a part of. Out of Psalm 34, it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. So it brings up a few questions. What is motivating you? What is directing you? And a really big question, whose kingdom are you building? In all that you do, are you helping to build the Lord's kingdom, which he's invited us all to partake in and partner with him in? Or are we doing these things to simply build our own kingdom here on earth? I, out, of, out of Isaiah 43, it says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory when I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Is this the role you've chosen that of a servant. When Jesus came to this earth and he said, no servant is above his master, and he's talking about what his disciples are to do. You are not above me. And how did I come to this earth? Did he come as a mighty conqueror? As a great triumphant leader? No, he came in the form of a servant. 
He came to serve many and to die for many for their sake. Is that the role you've chosen? Paul encourages us with this out of Philippians 2. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you will be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And so we consider, if, if this is what we've called ourselves to, or if we're wanting to commit to this further, if perhaps we've been off track for a little while, as we do this, what we say and what we do matters greatly. When we look back to the example of the servant, I came across several proverbs that just highlight how he composed himself. Out of Proverbs 25, 11 through 12, it says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. He shows honor and deference, but at the same time, urgency. He's not abrupt. He's not brash. He's not pushy, but he's letting them know what is going on and what is, and he's not, he's not flattering. He's just clear, and he's direct, and he shows honor while at the same time exemplifying humility in his speech. Out of Proverbs 17.8, a bribe is like a magic stone in the eyes of the one who gives it. Wherever he turns, he prospers. I'm not telling you to go bribe everybody. <laughs> but kindness and generosity go an extremely long way. Particularly to someone you've never met before, a kind gesture at the beginning of your encounter sets the tone particularly when you didn't need to do anything. You don't owe them anything, but the fact that you expressed a little bit of kindness opens people up to be more receptive to what it is you have to say. And of most importance, Proverbs 3, 6. In all your ways, acknowledge him being God, and he will make straight your paths. The servant is so faithful and consistent with this throughout his entire journey to seek God and glorify him for every victory that he's given throughout this process. Every little thing, he gives God all the glory. And if you want to walk along a straight path, if you don't want to wander, you don't want to stumble, you don't want to trip, you don't want to zigzag, you actually want to see where you're going, then acknowledge the Lord and follow after him. It doesn't mean you won't go uphill from time to time. It doesn't mean there won't be challenges along the way, but you'll be able to see where you're going. You won't be stumbling around in the darkness. So then it begs the question, if this is the example, if the servant is kind of the gold standard here, how do we compose ourselves? How are we doing that right now as we reflect upon it? How are you with your words? Proverbs 18, 20 through 21, it's one of my favorite passages. From the fruit of a man's mouth is his stomach satisfied. 
He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. No matter what you say, you're going to eat the fruits that come out of your mouth, whether for good or for bad. There's an old phrase, an old saying for if you said something that you really shouldn't have said, or it's come back upon you. I had to eat my words. And that's exactly what this is talking about. And you don't get to, once you say them, you don't get to put them back. And you have to ask yourself, what do you want to be known for? Do you want to be known as a people who glorifies, who exemplifies, who honors, who lifts up, who encourages, who exhorts, who spurs one another on? Or do we want to know, be known for what we tear down, what we destroy, what we debilitate, what we demoralize? All the dis. What do you want to be known for? What you say will be very clear to people. But even more so, what you do will be very clear to people. Out of Ephesians 5, 6 through 8, it says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the, war, light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Do not look around at the world and compare. Don't say, I'm doing way better than they are. That is not a good bar to compare to because the bar is way down here. There's no bar. Whatever you want, it's all good. That is not how God has called us to. Don't compare yourself to other people. Compare yourself to the word of the Lord. Does he say this is good and acceptable and perfect? If no, then ask him for the strength to not do those things. To walk in his light and his righteousness that he empowers through you. And consider why you're doing it in the first place. Why you're saying it in the first place. What are your motivations? And of Colossians 3, 17, it says, In whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's entirely possible to live your whole life being amazing as a person. Your speech is righteous. Your actions are profound. And to end up cast out into outer darkness when you meet the Lord. Jesus says this point blank to us. He says, there'll be some that say, we cast out demons in your name and mighty works in your name. And I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And it comes back to that question, whose kingdom are you building? Because you can do all of those good things for your sake, and you're simply building your own name. Are you doing it out of your motivation for your love and appreciation for all that God has done for you? Are you building God's kingdom? Are you building your kingdom? Which brings us to the rest of our life. This day moving forward, you're happily ever after. Reflecting upon Isaac and Rebecca's happily ever after. But the reality is, is a life isn't a fairy tale. Life happens before, during, and after those big monumentous moments that we're living for. And it's not always easy. And we're encouraged to not focus on those things. And in 1 John 2, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that these things are unimportant in your life and you should never think about them. I'm not saying that spouse that you would like to have or that spouse that you would like to improve, or that yourself that needs to improve, or that job you'd like to have, or that degree that you're trying to obtain. I'm not saying those are unimportant. What I'm saying is don't live for those things. Don't let your entire life revolve around that thing, where it becomes an icon in your life. My life will finally begin when I get married. My life will finally begin when I get that promotion. My life will finally begin when I finish my degree. And my big question to you is, what happens when your life finally begins? What are you living for now? Because all you were doing was living for that moment, and it was a moment. It happened. Congratulations. Enjoy the moment. Out of Ecclesiastes 7, it says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made one as well as the other, so that man cannot find out the end from the beginning. Is that in that moment, enjoy the moment that you have. Enjoy the achievement. Enjoy all that God has done for you. Enjoy it. But that can't be your whole life. That can't be everything that's defining you and that you're living for, because that moment is past now. And you're going to find yourself in a moment of crisis, of who am I anymore? has to be more. Out of Philippians 4, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Life will be full of ups and downs. Life will be full of difficulties. When we look at Rebecca and Isaac, they have this fairy tale moment, but their life is far from perfect. And that should be actually encouraging to us because they have a normal life, just like you and me. The important part is, are we pressing through the Lord? Are we living through the Lord's purposes, which are eternal? Or are we living for things that are just going to pass away? So I encourage you, press into God. Amen?